we are coming to a place in our, our summertime Bible studies here on Sunday morning where we have been taking words that I believe that we need to know that we hear a lot. We may even use the words, but we may not fully understand them or be able to explain them. And we've looked at five other words so far. We started with the word propitiation, which is a sacrifice that turns away wrath that was generated by our own sin. And, it, and Jesus was that sacrifice, propitiation. We studied the word redemption, the taking of a slave and setting that slave free by the payment of a price. And almost always when you find that word in the New Testament, you'll find the price nearby, the blood of Jesus or the life of Jesus Christ. We studied the word reconciliation and, and how God and, and the person without Christ are literally in conflict because of sin. And how reconciliation is God removing the source of that conflict, which is our sin, through Christ. Punishing that sin, Him taking our place, Him being our substitute, God removes the source of that conflict. We looked at the word justification. How God looks at us who are not right, we are sinners, we are wrong. How God looks at us and says we're right even though we're not, declares us righteous as if we had never sinned, looks at us completely as innocent. And then last week we looked at the word adoption, and, and we're seeing how intensely personal the Father is, how He wants you to be part of His family and to have all of the rights, all of the privileges of a natural-born child, and He adopts us into His family. And what's interesting is all five of those words are things that you and I simply can trust God to do. We can take God at His word and believe that it's about us, that when I trusted Jesus Christ, all these things became true of me. And they're, they're wonderful words. They're glorious words. Today, we're looking at a word that describes something not that God has done outside of you, but that God does inside of you. We're now looking at something God does to us. God does to the person who puts their trust in Christ. And that word is regeneration. And it's not a word that you see a lot of in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used this way twice. But we're going to see that the idea is all throughout the New Testament, and it's describing something very significant that we need to understand. Now, we have built every study the same way, asking three questions. What does this word mean? How do we define it? And then what does this word tell us about God? I don't think we often enough think about the implications of these words and what they reveal to us. And then, how should this word affect my life? What difference does it make? So let's take that first question. What is regeneration? What is it? What does it mean? Well, here's the definition. I want to give it to you right away. Here's the definition. Regeneration is the radical spiritual change brought about in a person's life by an act of God. Let's break that down. I've got three words there that really stand out. Re regeneration is the radical spiritual change. Radical spiritual change. It's supposed to be a change that happens inside you. 
It is primarily a spiritual change, meaning it has something to do with the Holy Spirit, and it is a radical change, meaning you are entirely and completely impacted by this word, by this change. There's a transformation that takes place. So it is a radical spiritual change brought about in a person's life by an act of God. It's not your action. It's not something you have done. It's something exclusively that God has done, which is true of all the words we've studied. And, and so it's something that God has done for every Christian, and God has done for every believer. When we talk about regeneration, there are a couple of other ways of describing this. We use the phrase new birth, and we also use the phrase born again. And those are biblical concepts, and we see them, we run into them again and again. Now, what's, what's interesting about this word is, although I've given you a definition, and by the way, I think it's a marvelous definition that I've given you, but this is a difficult word to define. It's a difficult word to describe because it's describing something happening inside a person, happening spiritually, and it's difficult sometimes to put our minds around it or to put uh, some real structure to it. But we're going to do that this morning because Jesus speaks of it in John chapter 3. Every definition falls short, so we must hear Jesus. Now, what's interesting in John 3 and, and this is the same passage you're going to be studying in your groups if you're part of a 242 group that is studying these, um, these words each week. What's really interesting about this is when Jesus approaches different individuals, he approaches them in different ways. In John 3, he approaches a man named Nicodemus and tells him he needs to be born again. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But in the very next chapter, he approaches a woman, very different kind of person, not educated, not wealthy, doesn't have the kind of background that Nicodemus had, and he approaches her in an entirely different way. They both need the new birth. They both need the transformation. But Jesus speaks to them using different images and symbols to talk about their need for God. But let's see what Jesus does here in John chapter 3. We've got to learn from him what this word means. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God can't comprehend it. If you understand the kingdom of God the way the New Testament does as being the exercise or the extension of God's will, God's power, God's presence, then a person who's not been born again, Jesus says they can't see that. They can't see God at work around them. They can't see what God is doing. They, they have no recognition. It's impossible. Something is missing inside them. He says they need to be born again. Now, Nicodemus had to be blown away by what Jesus just told him. Nicodemus, we know, is a member of the Sanhedrin, which is a, the highest decision-making religious body 
in that, in that part of the world, in, in Palestine and Judea. And it's composed of men who are old. You couldn't be part of this group if you were a young man. So typically, if you were a part of this group, you were older, you had some years on you, you had some influence, you had wealth, you were educated, you had the proper credentials in terms of religious scholarship. Nicodemus would have been the equivalent today of a Ph.D., and this man comes to Jesus by night. Obviously, he doesn't want everybody to know about it. And this man with this kind of background comes to him, and he pays what seems to be a great compliment to Jesus and seems to be offering maybe an olive branch to him because all the other religious leaders have been in opposition to Jesus. And he's, he comes to him and says, We know that you're a great teacher who has come from God because no one could do the things that you're doing unless they were from God. And if you follow this conversation through John chapter 3, Jesus seems almost short with this man. The man uses fewer and fewer words as the conversation goes on. And each time, Jesus almost cuts him off and speaks and speaks so directly and so clearly and so powerfully that this Ph.D., wealthy, influential man, older man, is almost sputtering in disbelief, does not understand what Jesus is saying, does not understand what Jesus is talking about. And so he's in shock. And if there was any question uh, that, well, whether or not he was blown away, in verse 7, Jesus looks at him and says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, if Jesus said, don't marvel, what was he doing? Well, he was marveling. He was, he was amazed. I can almost imagine him thinking to himself, Jesus, do you know who you're talking to? I, I, I'm not just one of the, the lowlifes that you normally deal with. I, I'm someone of some significance, importance, influence, I have had training. I know some things. I'm not a rookie. I'm not ignorant. I'm not a baby. I'm not messed up. I got a lot of things going the right direction. And I think you're a good teacher, and I got some things I can learn from you. You know, a lot of people in the world today want Jesus the way Nicodemus seemed to want Jesus in the beginning. They want to call him a good teacher. They want to look at him as a good example, as some kind of special person. What the followers did with his teachings later, that was the followers' fault. But Jesus by himself is a, is a symbol of loving all humanity, of being caring, of being compassionate, and, and talking about things, about loving others, not hating your enemies. Uh, he had all these wonderful things to say, and, and so I want to know him as a teacher. I want to understand him in that way. And, and we almost have, because of that, that existing in our culture, it has infected even the church. And we have people in the church that want to approach Jesus in the same way. We have, in America, we have almost, I don't know how many varieties of what it means to be a Christian. We have Christians and we put something in front of it. We have blank Christians, we have blank Christians, we have blank Christians. And then in that list, 
typically when culture talks about it and sometimes even when the church talks about it, we have born-again Christians as if they were a separate category. Listen, there's no other kind. And we think of born-again Christians in our culture almost negatively because born-again Christians are, are the kind of people that, that have really messed up their life. They have, they have messed every aspect of their life up. They're the criminals. They're the addicts. They're the people who have really just ripped their whole social structure apart by their own actions and their own words. And we look at people like that. We look at people in prison, and we say they need to be born again And when they get born again, it seems like they have this deep, convulsive, cathartic, emotional experience, and they needed that. I don't need that. They needed that. Or we think of born-again Christians as people who are somehow psychologically defective, and they, they just really need strong, authoritative, moral systems that they can depend on. They need to see things in black and white, and they want everything around them to be black and white. And so they, they have this dependence or this desire and need for moral structure. And what's really interesting is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as John captured the different people that Jesus talked to, he captured this conversation with this particular man. Because Jesus is not saying to Nicodemus that you're messed up, And that what you need is this cathartic experience. He's not saying that to him. He's not saying what you need, Nicodemus, is a moral system and some higher moral authority in your life. This this man's a Pharisee. He has hundreds of rules he keeps. He doesn't need any moral system, doesn't need a moral structure, doesn't need any of that. What Jesus is saying to him is, look, Nicodemus, Except the man's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, everything up to this moment in your life, you need to trash it. You need to throw it away. None of it is worth anything. You need a new beginning. You need a fresh start. You need a new birth. You need to be born again. And Nicodemus gets it. Partly. Now, why is it that he needed an entirely new life? This guy who had it all together, who was, his personality was stable, and he was a strong person, and he was a, a considered wise and educated and successful. Why does his life need to be restarted? Why does he need a new beginning? Why does he need a fresh start? Well, I want to give you two reasons why we need to be born again from elsewhere in the Scripture. Then we're going to come back to this story. The first one, without regeneration, first of all, you are spiritually dead. You are spiritually dead. Now, dead, the way I'm using it here is the way the Bible uses death. Death is never the end in the Bible. Death is never extinction in the Bible. Death is always separation. If you look at examples like Luke chapter 16, you have this man who's in hell. He's dead. He died, and he went to hell, to Hades. And there he is talking. He has a conscience. He is conscious. He's not gone. He's not 
He has not ceased to exist. There's a part of him that continues. And so death is always separation. It is never extinction. When God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of that forbidden tree, you will surely die. It was not the end of their physical life. It was not the extinction of life. It was separation. Separation between them and who? God. And so there was a spiritual death. And so we need to be born again because we are spiritually dead. The passage I want you to see is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And this probably makes it as clear as any other passage I could chose. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, that's verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. You he made alive. If he made you alive, what was your problem? You were dead. It's like a resurrection. So this is even another word picture than rebirth, but he makes them alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Anybody here sin-free? If you've got sin in your life, and without Christ, you are spiritually dead, this passage says. It gets worse. Dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. There's a whole world system with ready answers to every question you have about life and a, and a solution to every problem you face that has nothing to do with God. There's a course of this world. There's a way to live without God, and the world has it. Who walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who do you think that is? You think that's a, a good angel or a bad angel? It's bad. Amen. Thank you. One person knew that. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You know what that means? That means every lost person has at least one demonic spirit influencing their life. You see that in the text? I'm not making that up. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And so there's the world, there's the prince of the power of the air, the devil. And then verse 3, among whom also we all, now he's, he's including Christians, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, and that's that part of you that wants to do life without God. It creates desires in you that are ungodly. That It is that part of you that you were born with. You didn't, you didn't start sinning, and now suddenly you have a flesh problem. You had a flesh problem, and that's why you sin. He said, conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's why you need to be born again. In the eyes of the world, you may be well-educated, successful, wise, and so forth. But that's nothing if you're spiritually dead. Because you have three enemies that are at work against you right now. Christians have the same enemies. But you are totally hostage. You are totally bound by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And dear one, you may argue with me all you want, but that's what the Bible says about you without Christ. That is your condition. You can say, I don't need God, I don't need religion, and I'm going to say you're being held hostage right now by your own flesh, by a demonic spirit who's influencing your decisions, influencing your perspective of what happens in your life, influencing your thinking about God, and an entire world system designed to keep you from knowing God. The enemy will do everything he can to keep you from knowing Jesus Christ by faith. And so you are spiritually dead 
without the new birth. Another reason you need regeneration is that you are spiritually deaf. Now, there's other reasons, but this is a good one to me. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural man. The natural man is what you are when you're born the first time. You are natural. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. He doesn't even have the capacity or the ability to understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. So God speaks. God speaks through his word, speaks through the Bible, speaks through other Christians, speaks through the assembly of the Christians. He, he speaks in prayer. He speaks in all these different ways. But until you were born again, you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. You don't have the equipment to hear God. You are broken. Spiritually deaf. And when God comes and there's this new birth, he puts something inside you that drives the old demon out. He puts something inside you that learns to recognize the world system of values. He puts something inside of you that, that's a whole new set of desires that are contrary to the desires of your old flesh. And the Christian is someone who is very different than everybody else around them because of the new birth. I brought something with me to, um, to help me describe this just a little bit. I have, um, I have a camera, and um, I, I brought the big lens on it so you could see it. See, it's a big one. And, um, and I like to take pictures. Um, if you're messing around up and down my street in the backyard, I might take a picture of you messing around. Get that license plate, whatever. And um, this camera works off of a battery, okay? And I can pop that battery out. Now, without this battery, this camera is worthless as far as what it was made to do. It cannot do what it was made to do. Now, I can take this battery, and I can plug it into this charger, and I can charge it up, and I can put that battery back inside, and it'll work just fine. I can get it in there properly. It'll work just fine. But without the battery, it won't work. Now, now, this is where I need you to hear me. This camera, the battery needs to be recharged, and it runs down. And then you have to put the new battery back on the charger, charge it up, and put it back in. When, when someone is born again, God puts a battery inside of you that never needs to be recharged. And you are always then ready to function the way God made you to function. You are made to live in fellowship with God. He made you for himself. He made you for a relationship with him. And once the Holy Spirit comes in and there's this new birth that takes place, you are now built to have that fellowship with him. And change begins to take place. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. So those are two reasons why you and I need to be born again. Now Nicodemus is thoroughly confused. Listen to what he says in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, one thing that tells me about Nicodemus is he takes the Word of God literally. Jesus said, You've got to be born again. He didn't understand the symbolic nature of what Jesus was describing. It's a real thing, but it's being symbolized by the new birth. 
Well, let me tell you what else it shows me. Um, this is just a side comment, side observation. If you're a Bible student and in notes of your Bible or in some commentary that you've read, you'll read some people say, well, that, that Greek word that's, that's translated born again can also mean born from above. And that certainly has some truth to it. If you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes in, does a hidden work inside of you, changes you permanently on the inside, puts the nature of God inside of you, and you are never going to be the same because of what the Holy Spirit has done, and it comes from above, and, and, and it comes down to you, so born from above, that makes sense. Except that's not what Nicodemus understood. He said, can a man be born a second time? He said, how does a man get born from above? He doesn't ask that question. He says, can a man be born a second time? Born again is the best way to understand this. So Jesus replies, verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Two different births. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Are you a Ph.D.? Are you serious? I mean, this man understood the Old Testament. He knew that throughout the Old Testament there was a heart cry. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 51, create in me, O God, a clean heart. There was this heart cry throughout the Old Testament. God answers it in Ezekiel 35, he's, uh, 36. He says, for my name's sake, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a new heart in you. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. And I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. When Jesus talks about water and the wind, he's referring to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 37, the dry bones, I'm going to breathe and these bones are going to live. These bones are going to live. He should have known that. See, Nicodemus should have understood what God was doing, what God was saying to him through Jesus. Babies don't birth themselves. I've been at the birth of six children personally. My wife was there too. Not one of them did it on their own. In fact, not one of the six children did anything to help the situation. Birth is something that happens to you. It's not something you do. How can I be born again? You can't be born again. He's the one that gives the new birth. He's the one that does it. And so there's a method to this. Jesus is trying to explain that to him. There's nothing you can do, Nicodemus. This is like the wind that blows. You know it's real. You feel it. There's pressure. You know something is happening to you, but you can't touch it. You can't grab it. You can't define it, but it's real. And every person who's been born again sitting in this room, you know that God's done something to you. You know that God's at work in you. You know that God's changing you, but try to explain it to anybody else. And there's a mystery to this because of that. Nicodemus has a problem that most religious people have. We read about it already, mentioned it in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Jesus, I want to know you as a teacher. 
My problem, Jesus, is I don't know enough. I don't have the right answers. And so, Jesus, I have come this far on my own, and if you'll help me a little bit, God, if you'll help me just a little bit, I can get where you want me to be. And some of us approach Christianity like that. God, just give me a little help, and I'll be better next time. I'll be what you want me to be next time. And that's the position that Nicodemus is saying. But listen to what Jesus says next, verse 11. And Jesus keeps talking and talking, and Nicodemus just winds up having to shut up. And dear one, if you don't understand what God is doing, one of the best things you can do is shut up. And listen, listen to what God is saying. Verse 11, most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. You and everybody like you, Nicodemus. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I could teach you from now to the end of time and you're not going to believe. Something is wrong with you, Nicodemus. Something is broken with you if I tell you heavenly things. No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus, I didn't come from heaven to teach you. I came from heaven to save you. You don't need just a lesson. You need a life. And I'm the only one that can give it to you. And it's interesting, he pulls up this almost obscure story from Numbers chapter 21, where the people once again the Israelite children wandering in the wilderness are complaining and whining against God, whining against Moses. And God sends what the Bible calls fiery serpents among the people. And they bite the people. They, they get snake bit. And it hurts. And they are in pain. And they, they repent. And they come to Moses and say, oh, pray for us. Make this stop. And God tells Moses, he said, make a bronze servant. Put it up on a big pole. Hold that pole up. And everybody that looks to that pole, their life, they will live. They will live. Nicodemus, what God sent me to do is just like that. I have a lot to say. There are things I want you to know about God, but the reason he sent me is so that I could be lifted up. And so that everyone who looks to me, everyone who believes in me, will be saved. They will be given a new life. The broken will be made whole the, the people that are damaged and destroyed beyond belief will have a new beginning and a new start. They need to be born again, and I can give it to them. You don't need me to be your teacher, Nicodemus. You need me to be your Savior. Now, now what happened to Nicodemus after this? He didn't say anything else after this. I mean, Jesus just shut the Ph.D. down. I mean, he's... he's Shut down. But something interesting happens in John chapter 7. The Sanhedrin sent a group of soldiers to arrest Jesus, and, and they couldn't do it. And they come back, and they said, why didn't you do it? And they said, no one ever spoke like this. And they said, are you, you know, they said a lot of nice, not nice things to those soldiers. And in the midst of that conversation, Nicodemus, who was one of them, spoke up, and he said, Shouldn't we listen before we pass judgment? Shouldn't we listen to what, what he's saying before we, we judge him and try to stop him? Shouldn't we pay attention to what he's saying? 
and they said, are you from Galilee? Are you from where he's from? Haven't you read your Bible? Nothing good comes out of Galilee. And they shut Nicodemus down. You almost feel sorry for him. Everywhere he goes, people are shutting him down. And then in John chapter 19, it is the day that Jesus has died on the cross. And another man like Nicodemus, rich, wealthy, influential Jewish, goes to Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea, and he goes to him and he says, I would like to take his body and put it in a tomb, my tomb. And he gets permission from Pilate to do that, and he goes, and he's joined by somebody else. You know who he's joined by? Nicodemus. Those two men took the body of Jesus just before an important religious day, religious evening, when you're supposed to be clean and not supposed to touch dead things and not supposed to be unceremonially filthy. And they take this dead body of Jesus, and they put it in a tomb, and they wrap it up for burial, and they, they put the body in the tomb. Listen. You know what's so significant about that is in ancient times, that was not something men did. That was women's work. That was the mindset. And these two men had gotten to a place where they didn't care anymore. They took the body of Jesus and they buried him. Now, do I know that Nicodemus was born again for certain? I can't tell you that. The Bible doesn't say that. You know, some people hear the gospel the first time, they're born again just like that. And whenever anybody's born again, by the way, they are born again just like that. But there are people who hear the gospel, like some of you are hearing it today, and, and you, you go back and you think about it, 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 and God is at work through all of that, but you're not born again yet. Still thinking about it. And Nicodemus obviously was thinking about it. He was thinking about that encounter with Jesus on that dark night in John chapter 3, and he's thinking about it, and the truth just keeps gripping him. And at some point, I, I personally think he understood what Jesus was talking about. He understood that when Jesus was lifted up and people would look to him, they're going to be drawn to him. If they look to him, if they look to him in faith, put their trust in him, that they could be saved and they would be born again the moment they put their trust in Christ. You know what happened on that Friday afternoon? Nicodemus saw Jesus lifted up. And how Jesus' words must have crashed through his heart as it all came together that made sense. And he believed. What does regeneration tell us about God? These next two questions aren't as long as the first one, so you can relax. What does regeneration tell us about God? In Titus chapter 3, verse 4, we read, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, Regeneration tells us three things based on that passage. It tells us that God loves before he saves. And I want you to hear that in the text. It says, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, according to his mercy, he saved us. Before he saved you, he loved you. He didn't save you and start loving you. He didn't make you lovable and start loving you. Before he saved you, he loved you. He loves you now. And so God loves before he saves. Secondly, God saves without any contribution from you. That same text says 
not by works of righteousness, which we have done. I contribute nothing. There are some Christian systems of belief that say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but you've got to add to what Jesus did. You can't do that. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. That's what the Bible says. I add nothing. He brings everything I need when he saves me. Thirdly, regeneration tells us that God changes you through a decisive, supernatural act. It's not something you do, it's something God does, and it's a work of the Holy Spirit of God. That when you trust Jesus Christ, and there's a lot of debate, discussion, does the new birth come first and then people trust Jesus, or do they trust Jesus and then the new birth comes? I'm just going to tell you right now, since you've got no control over how the new birth happens, trust Jesus. Just trust Jesus. Put your faith in him. And the Bible says that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believed in his name. John 1, 12. So God changes you through a decisive, supernatural act. That word saved refers to a moment in time, a single moment, and it's decisive, it's permanent, and it's done. Third question, last question. How should regeneration affect the way I live? I've got nothing to do with it. I can't cause it. So how does it affect the way that I live? I want to call your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, what's described there in that verse is what happens in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light, there was light. He just spoke it, and it happened. And that's creation. None of those things had ever existed. But when God created them, he took something and it, out of nothing, and he simply spoke it into existence, and it was all brand new. It had never existed before. Now, when he says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, he's saying what happened in Genesis 1 just happened to that person that trusts Jesus. They became a new creature. It's like God restarted Genesis in that person's heart. They become a new creation, literally a new creation, just like Genesis 1. They become a new creation, a new species of human being that has never existed before when that person is in Christ, a new creation. And so I want to make this statement. And... Um, and I think it can help you understand how the new birth affects our life. Here's the statement. The internal change is complete. When you trust Jesus Christ, when you are born again by the Spirit of God, it is done. It's not a process. The new birth happens or it doesn't happen. And when a person's born again, that change is completed. It is done. But it is always followed by external changes over time into the family likeness. If God has put in you his nature, if God has imparted to you his nature and you become part 
Through the Holy Spirit of God, you become part of the divine nature, and that lives in you. Children grow up to look like their parents. Typically, a natural child grows up and looks like their mom or their dad. We argue about which one they look more like, or somehow they look like the uncle or the grandfather more than the parents, but but there's some kind of tie, and they take on a family resemblance, so much so that when you take that group family shot, people can say, well, that one's part of the family. Look at that nose. Look at those ears. Look at that hairline, whatever the case is. Look at that belt line. They're part of the family. They take on a family resemblance. And when a person's been born again, give it time. But God is at work inside that person to bring them more and more into the likeness of the, of the family to where more and more they look like Jesus. They're already not the same person. The moment they trust Jesus and they're born again, they're already different, forever different, forever they're different. But over time, that transformation bubbles to the surface. Different attitudes, different words, different ways of living, different ways of acting, different ways of making decisions, a whole different approach to life, and it begins to look more and more like Jesus Christ. In the fourth century, one of the early church fathers was a man named Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. Augustine, when he was young, was pretty active with women. He had a mistress, had a child out of wedlock, worried his mother Monica to death. He was a womanizer, always messing around, always involved in a relationship, always doing what he shouldn't be doing. That's the kind of man he was. And then he trusted Jesus. He was confronted with the gospel, trusted Jesus. He was born again, wrote a whole book about how God changed his life from the inside out, thought deeply about it, described it, talked about it in his confessions of St. Augustine. One day, he tells a story walking down the street, and he hears a voice that says, Augustine, Augustine, and it's a woman, and he sees her, and he knows it's one of the ones he had been with when he was younger, and like most of us would be, I don't know that we want anything to do. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to bring that up, so he kind of looked down. He's trying to walk away. Augustine, Augustine, don't you remember me? Don't you remember the nights we spent together? Augustine, Augustine, it is I. At that point, Augustine looked up at her, and he said, yes, but it is not I. Do you understand what he was saying? He's different. He's a different kind of man. Could he be tempted? Sure. Could he have desires to do what he used to do? Sure. But on that particular day, he stood with confidence and was able to walk away from that situation. Why? Because he knew he'd been born again. He was a new man. He was a new creation in Christ. Have you been born again? I didn't ask you if you have trusted Jesus, walked an aisle, shook a preacher's hand, been baptized, or joined a church. I'm asking you if you've been born again. 
You say, well, pastor, you said you can't make yourself born again. That's true. But when you trust Jesus Christ and you trust him for forgiveness for your sin, he sends his spirit to live inside you. There is a new birth, and you become, over time, a new kind of person. Read 1 John tonight. Read it slowly. Over and over again, 1 John says, people who are born of God, they love other Christians. People who are born of God, they don't practice sin. People who are born of God, they trust Jesus. And all of these things that happen during the new birth should be bubbling to the surface. Have you been born again?